The His Girl Friday podcast is brought to you in part by Messenger Fellowship, living the kingdom, fulfilling the call, proclaiming the truth. How's it going, everyone? Hope you had a wonderful Easter weekend. It is 8 o'clock on a Monday night, and I'll be honest, I'm, I may be in Tennessee, but my mind is in France. Uh, Liz and I are preparing to get away for a special five-year anniversary trip slash missions trip. It's kind of split. It's a 10-day excursion. The first four or five days will be personal, just uh, celebrating what's been a wonderful marriage so far. Last year was our five-year, but we're celebrating it this year because Everly was only three months uh, last April, and we just couldn't get away. We had to stay local. Now we were able. Uh, now the way things are set up, uh, both our kids are old enough to be watched by the in-laws, my parents, uh, even my sister and brother-in-law. So we got that rotation nailed down. Uh, everything's going to work out. We'll be in Paris, and we'll probably hit some of the countryside. And uh, my wife's a big Joan of Arc fan, so we'll probably hit up. Um, some of the meaningful locales uh, with with historical significance, but really excited. And we'll, uh, as it stands now, Liz and I will cut a pod once we get back on May seventh or May eighth. Um, but I wanted to go back to last week and talk about a few things that I wrote that pertain to Holy Week. And I apologize; I meant to get this out, this podcast out uh, before Easter, but. I was so busy writing and fine-tuning and just a lot of things uh, were hitting the fan last week. So, um, But still, better better late than never. I had a hard time finding the title for this year's Easter post. It's an annual tradition that goes back to 2012. I uh, My first Easter post had to do with the Hunger Games. Uh, last year, uh, tw- rather 2017, I talked about Pilate and why he washed his hands. I'm trying to think what I wrote about Oh yeah, Saturday Night Life. What Jesus did on Saturday. We celebrate Good Friday, we celebrate Easter, but we don't really talk about what Jesus did in hell um, before the resurrection took place. So this year I was like, all right, I'm not sure what I'm going to write about. And sometimes it's just good to have conversations with people, um, people you know who are uh, similar minded of the similar faith and just talk about the reason for the season and in one conversation with a colleague at work uh, he's bivocational he he preaches on Sunday at his uh, local congregation uh, over in Smithville Tennessee and um, he's also our payroll manager so I'm in there quite often since budget my uh, my division in TDOT finance and payroll kind of joined the hip in some ways and so we have frequent conversations so I asked him hey what are you going to preach about and he um, told me one of the messages because he has a, a several that he has to do each weekend um, speaking at different locations he said he was going to talk about the significance of the torn veil and this is something that I have thought about doing in years past but it just never was you know that number one oh yeah the clear cut front runner I'm going to write about this um, I always kind of put on the back burner, like something I'm going to get to, and this was the year. But I think what really pushed this over the edges is I was um, reading the Gospels, specifically Matthew, Mark, Luke, and noting the contrasts. I also noted that 
not only did the veil tore, not only, sorry, not only did the veil tear, let me get my grammar right, uh, but these stones, uh, per Matthew, the stones split as well. And this got me thinking about why did Matthew include the stone splitting? We talk about the big stone, the tomb, the grave. We get that. But these rocks, these seemingly arbitrary rocks, what's the point of even bringing that up? I believe that everything in the scripture is included for a reason. I don't believe things are just randomly thrown in there for fluff. So let's talk about it. Let's jump right in. Uh, Before I do, um, let me talk about something else that I got yesterday. This will be a teaser. So consider this the appetizer portion of the podcast and the Torn Veil Split stones, that, that's the entree. The appetizer, this is going to be a teaser for 2020, and it's very rare that I get a lead on like this. But, um, you know, I was in the shower yesterday getting ready for Easter service, and I was listening to Luke 23 and 24 on you version. And something struck me in verse 12. One of those, again, seemingly out of left field verses, but I, I'm like, why did the author include that? So this is coming out of Luke 23, 12. And the verse is this, And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. So let's set the context. Pilate and Herod are playing hot potato with Jesus in large part because they believed a key component of Christ's nature, his innocence. Yes, Pilate and Herod thought he was a madman, a lunatic, but they didn't think he was dangerous. They may not have agreed with his doctrine and dogma, but they didn't see any reason to put him to death. Flogging to wake him up seemed to be the best idea, so they were kind of uh, inadvertently, maybe? I don't know what the right word is, but they saw something that the chief priest around him didn't. And they didn't even realize it, which is the crazy part. Chief priests were screaming mad. They were going crazy. So they really, you know, the, the Pharisee and Sadducee and Sanhedrin people, they really pushed this over the edge as far as, you know, they were the, the driving voice getting Christ to the cross. And it's interesting when you think about how, like, when you're growing up reading the uh, Easter story, you think the chief priests, even Pilate, Caiaphas, like, these are all bad guys. But when you think about how Jesus needed to die on the cross to redeem humanity to accomplish this mystery of reconciliation that we could partner with them today. You know, the people who played a part in getting Jesus to the cross, we shouldn't hate on them. They, like Jesus said it on the cross, they know not what they do. And you hope that they got it afterwards. That's one of the things I've, I've been curious about. Just did these people wake up at the end? We know some centurions woke up and the guy who was crucified on the, forget the left or right side of Jesus, but you know, there are people in the cross narrative who th- their eyes were opened during Jesus' last moments. And I, and I love that. I love to drill down on uh, those occurrences. Anywho, going back to uh, Pilate and Herod, I think it's so awesome. I think it's so remarkable how Jesus was inspiring love among enemies during his final moments. You know, in the midst of chaos, Christ was doing what he had been his entire life. That's bridging peace in unexpected places among enemies. 
people who were strangers, who were at odds, who didn't agree on hardly anything. So you have this little nugget in Luke 23, 12 that captures this wonderful example of what Christ's presence can bring even when we come to the death of ourselves. So I just wanted to share that with you. That just really was blowing my mind. I was having my quiet time yesterday morning. And uh, maybe there'll be a, a time down the line to unpack it all. But, you know, one of the things I want to drill down on as well is to see if Herod and Pilate's reconciled relationship played any part in the spread of Christianity post-resurrection. I think it's certainly plausible when you consider Jesus always had the future in mind when blazing trails of community. And you could look back. I'll link up my John 13 post on how the towel signified early church community which ties into that 40-day stretch Jesus was on earth after he resurrected and was with people and he was um, still nurturing and training and equipping his disciples for what was to come, uh, the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2. All right, I've talked too much about that. Um, I want to talk about the rocks and the torn veil. All right, let's set the stage. It's the most pivotal moment in history. Jesus on the cross a joy once set before him, now the weight of the world. Battered and bruised, he waits. The darkness of sin in foreign space. The epitome of innocence, now weeping for his father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's a clip in my favorite Jesus of Nazareth rendition, my favorite version of all the films that have been made about Jesus. Uh, the one with James, I think James Powell or Robert Powell. It's 1977, um, loaded cast, and I was rewatching it. It's like a six-hour movie. It was broken up into four parts, I believe. But you have this really cool scene where in these, this two-minute stretch where one of the chief priests, who had been one of his biggest haters throughout the entire movie, um, realizes that Jesus is quoting the scripture when he says that. Some people are thinking, oh, he's calling Elijah. And the chief priest knows, nope, it's not Elijah. He's quoting the scriptures, even as he's dying on the cross. And it's like you see him beginning to realize, you know what? I may have been wrong about this guy. Um, you know, this guy is proving that he is in part not of this world. And then you have Nicodemus uh, just moments later. And this, granted, this is, you know, creative cinema. Uh, we don't really know the timeline of this, so... The director is using his uh, his creative rights, but I love uh, how he captured Nicodemus, who he finally has this moment where he realizes what born again means when Jesus pulled him aside, or rather he, sorry, Nicodemus saw Jesus out in secret, and Jesus said, you know, to know who I am, to discover me, paraphrasing here, you must be born again, and Nicodemus says that line, you know, can a man certainly enters his mother's womb a second time. And then you see Nicodemus' eyes open. Um, not exactly sure if that happened uh, in sequence, but I love that scene in the movie, and I posted that clip, uh, trimmed and edited on my blog on His Girl Friday. Anywho, so imagine you're a centurion or you're a bystander. You're Nicodemus or a chief priest, and you're watching, you know, a disciple. You're watching this wonder working power hanging helpless on a tree, on a cross, just naked and vulnerable, standing amidst this moment in time as it became a moment for eternity. 
It's at this intersection between that moment in time when Jesus was dying on the cross and the moment we look forward to when we get to heaven and this eternal relationship is uh, consummated. What if I told you it's at this intersection we could find new life and victory today? And I'm going to answer that question again through the lens of some rocks of Ellen White tour immediately after Jesus' last breath. But before we go there, we have to go back over a uh, millennium earlier. We got to talk about the Holy Temple first and it, uh, how it got started. So, Holy Temple, as many of you know, in Jerusalem was the hub of Jewish religious life. It was a place where animal sacrifices and scroll readings were carried out according to the law of Moses the center of Jewish custom and tradition. In this temple, a veil separated the Holy of Holies from the outer court for several reasons, uh, three of them being, number one, the Holy of Holies was a landing spot for God's presence. The Holy of Holies was a place of communion between God and the high priest, and the Holy of Holies signified man's separation from God by sin, which when you think about it, this foreshadows sanctification through atonement. That was all coming. Isaiah 59, 1 through 2, and Hebrews 9, 6 through 9 capture this in tandem. You guys could read it um, or check out hisgorefire.com. Uh, but when you read them in context together, you get this picture over a millennium of one high priest making one annual visit to encounter God under first covenant law. I don't know about you, but that's intense. I can only imagine if memes existed back then, how many would hinge on no pressure taglines. Not to mention, if you take John 3.16 and you extrapolate it back to Exodus, you get something like, before God could send his one and only son, he had one and only day to meet one and only mediator, a high priest, oblivious to how the blood of his lambs bowed the blood of the lamb. Now, I'm being frivolous in my paraphrasing, but perhaps you're Still wondering, okay, Cam, what does any of this have to do with Jesus dying on the cross? Well, now we go. We could jump to the Gospels. Um, Matthew 27, 50 through 51, Mark 15, 37 to 39, Luke 23 through 44, sorry, Luke 23, 44 through 47, respectively. Sorry, I get respectively and respectfully confused sometimes. I will read these verses. So the Matthew account says this. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. Let's go to Mark 15. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Now we go to Luke. It was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had happened take place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. All right, so I'm sure some contrasts leap out immediately. Matthew, we see the veil tearing and the rock splitting, no mention of the centurion. In Mark, we don't have the rock splitting, but the centurion is introduced, confessing Christ as the Son of God. And in Luke, we have timestamps and are reintroduced to the centurion, who this time confesses Christ is innocent. Unlike Matthew and Mark, the veil is said to have been torn prior to Jesus' death, but let's not get so caught up in did the veil tear before fire and does this have any significance. 
The fact is that as Jesus was dying, at the point of his death, most likely after, the veil tears. And that's the common denominator in all the counts, is the torn veil. And it's uh, interesting also to note that, you know, when you think about this torn veil, in a lot of the movies we watch, the animated shorts, you know, the veil tears with these. But this was something, this was a huge veil that was 60 feet high and four inches thick. The scriptures don't confirm this mathematically, but uh, the picture we get um, when you marry all the accounts in the Old Testament about the dimensions of the veil, we get this idea that not even Samson could tear this thing. So this is when something that human hands could... Uh, rip or tear in their own strength. Interestingly, when we merge the Matthew, Mark, and Luke accounts, you get, uh, when, you, when you merge the differences together, this is how it sounds. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having breathed his last, the earth shook. The rocks were split, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now when the centurion saw that what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was the Son of God. Interesting to note that the centurion praised God. I don't think it's a, a mistake that that word was used. Um, he didn't, you know, he maybe cried out, but I think with praise, it's like there's this worship, like, Oh my goodness, my eyes are open, I see the truth. What a p- profound, powerful moment as I come to the end of myself. Um, so that, you know, I, and this is all ad lib. I didn't actually write this. I'm just getting this as I read this now. I think it's so cool to read the the crucifixion resurrection narrative because each time you read it, chances are you're going to get something new out of it or a new angle. And for me, just like yesterday with Luke 23, 12, <laughs> I'm like, oh, the centurion praised God. He's having this worship moment. Anywho, maybe I'll unpack that later, but... You can clearly see the, the magnitude of the moment. Once Jesus surrenders his spirits, at this point, the veil tears. And the orientation of that tear is significant, as it didn't occur randomly, just like there's not a random scripture, as it's all God-breathed, but you know, the veil tore from top to bottom. What does this mean? The significance of the torn veil can be simplified as the consummation of Christ's sacrifice and atonement. And the significance of the torn veil tearing from top to bottom was that the Holy of Holies was now open to all people 24-7-365. No longer would the, you know, was there a one mediator, a high priest that had to go in and represent the masses. Rather, Christ could now be both our high priest and the way to get to him. Hebrews 8-10 through 10 breaks this down beautifully, specifically when you combine 8-13, 9-8-9, and 10-19-20. Again, you can read them, and I encourage you not only to read them separately, but link them together and, and see how it sounds. Um, to quote Michael Hoodman, things of the temple were shadows of things to come, and they are ultimately, and they ultimately point us to Jesus Christ. He was the veil to the Holy of Holies, and through his death, the faithful now have free access to God. As for the rocks splitting, Though often lost in context, this too is a meaningful anecdote. While the torn veil signified the tearing of Jesus' flesh, the reconciliation between God and man in Christ's post-salvation residence, the split rocks captured the effects these had on the physical world. In one sense, you could look at the split rocks as a preview of the tomb that was to come. The split rocks were more than a consequence of the earthquake following Jesus' final breath. 
but rather a permanent reminder for humanity that death is the ground of resurrection, that what happens in the spiritual can't be excluded from the physical. So when you think about it, the rocks in a way also signal the resurrection of our earthly bodies and a kingdom that was to come that cannot be shaken, or that was coming, that was imminent. Uh, theology is granted very enough to warn a second post on this topic, uh, specifically the resurrection of our earthly bodies, when that happens, if it happens, etc. The bottom line is the rocks were both imagery and analogy and reality of God's sovereignty and creation, his power and death, and his intent for new life. One of my favorite authors, John Piper, paints this in Desiring God. The earth was shaken and the rocks split by a sovereign earth controller and a powerful rock ruler. Human deaths don't shake the earth and split rocks. God does. Rocks don't have a mind of their own. They do what God bids them do, and they shook and split. So, again, God's power, his sovereignty, his will, his might, the fact that he is refuge and strength, he is anchor and strong tower. The Psalms come alive even in the resurrection. Speaking of the Psalms, you know, think about it, what a visual the rocks are to Christ's identity as our everlasting rock. That comes from Isaiah 26, 3-5, our fortress in whom we take refuge, straight out of Psalm 144, 1-2. Yes, the veil reminds us the barriers once between God and the man are now a pathway to walk in. Let me say that again. True, the veil reminds us the barriers once between God and man are now a pathway to walk in boldness. But the rocks remind us that pathway is also one we can walk in confidence. And there's a difference between boldness and confidence. It's one of the uh, great insights that I got in my research. This isn't this idea, this nugget is not for me. It's from uh, someone called Benji Block. So all credits go to him. Uh, the difference between courage, boldness, and confidence, kind of a side anecdote, uh, footnote rather, uh, kind of a rabbit trail, but one worth pointing out because this is also blowing my mind. So courage is strength in the moment. Talk about boldness, talking about courage matured. Then we talk about confidence, talking about boldness matured. So we can't use boldness and confidence synonymously uh, or interchangeably, I should say. I've got to be careful. Um, so when I say walk in boldness um, and walk in confidence, they are related, they are linked, but they're not exactly the same thing. You've got to look at it in context. And the boldness that comes from Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, you can look it up. But bottom line, the ultimate bottom line, I mentioned all of this, the reason why we celebrate Easter, and that's what I hope to do with these Easter posts, is to capture a different angle, a different facet of why we celebrate Holy Week. Not just Easter on Sunday, uh, Resurrection Day, but um, what we think about, what we choose to dwell on on Good Friday and a Saturday in between, uh, the Holy Week, going back to um, Pentecost and Palm Sunday. We're commemorating Christ as our greatest anchor amidst a shaking world and our greatest security amidst a collapsing one. When life is unstable, he is able. How about that for Easter tagline? How sweet it is to know the power of the cross will always be enough to crack the rocks of life, that at the mention of his name, mountains bow down and the seas roar, the work of his hand, having taken the nails for us. And there you have it, folks. That is my 2019 Easter post. I know I read most of it um, while also kind of lending some commentary on the side. But due to time, I will pause and let you marinate in this, and I hope you enjoyed it. Um, I encourage you to go to hisgirlfriday.com to check it out so you can get the full context. You could see the scriptures. You could see the graphics and the illustrations. 
Um, as always, we really appreciate you taking the time to listen to us. And, you know, I know I've mentioned this before, but I really try and be intentional in um, cutting these uh, between 25 and 30 minutes because I'm very mindful of drive times and commuting times. And, you know, the, the whole inspiration of posting these podcasts was to give you something to listen to while you were going from point A to point B is you who there's a good chance you are vocational in some capacity. You're you're going from one appointment, um, whether it's from appointment to appointment, meeting to meeting, or from home to work, work to home. Um, Want to make sure that you have a chance to listen to other things. You don't feel so burnt out. But at any rate, Liz and I are praying for you. While we're in France, we encourage you to pray for us. But even in the days after Easter, in this week, don't tune out the reason for the season, Holy Week slash Easter. Think about the timeline 2,000 years ago. Jesus had witnessed, he had revealed himself to the disciples, and he was still among them at this time. Next 40 days. A lot of times you think about the 40 days leading up to Holy Week, but the 40 days after is just as precious. Jesus was still empowering and equipping and encouraging, and I encourage you to put yourself in a position to be encouraged, empowered, and equipped by the Lord in your quiet time as you engage community with one another and as you pursue unity at work and you seek to embody and represent and reflect that nature as you go to work uh, as an influencer, as an ambassador of Christ. So we are rooting for you as always, and you know how I always sign off on these things. We'll catch you on the fry. Peace.